father-in-law clapping during the scripture reading. We come from a very different church. It's like the WWF when you get up in that church. So he's trying to adjust a little bit. Um, one quick announcement before we get started. Um, we're going to have a men's retreat the second week of May. It'd be great that all the men who can come would come. Um, the theme of the weekend is fighting sin together. We're going to focus in on being a husband that loves our wives sacrificially like Christ loves the church, of being fathers that love our children like our Father in heaven loves us, and fighting sexual sin, the lust of the eyes, lustful thoughts, sexual impurity. We're going to, really going to take this time to come together, to turn to the gospel, be shaped by the word, keep each other accountable, pray for one another, and just spend some time together. So if you can come, that would be great. Um, other stuff to do up there. We've got a ping pong table up there. The interim championship belt is on the line. Kevin is not coming, so we have a chance. This brother walked in with his own paddle last time, and we all knew we were in trouble. When a guy brings his own paddle, you know you're in trouble and uh, end up being four-seated. But I think this time i got a shot since Kev's not going. There's b-ball hoops there. Outside, we can play some football, canoes. We have a little bonfire at night. Hopefully, we'll get a nice day in May. Dinner, breakfast, and lunch is included, and it will really just be a good time for men to get together in fellowship. Now, we're not just looking for the 20 and 30-year-olds. You older brothers can come, too. Joe Vex, 73 years old, and he signed up ready to go. This is for all guys, all ages. If you can make the time, it's not going to be that long. It's going to start roughly at um, 6 o'clock on Friday night, and you can leave the next day at 2 o'clock. So please come if you are able to come. And uh, let's jump into the message. Last week, Matt talked about how the resurrection means that God makes all things new cosmically. This week, we're going to focus in on how the resurrection means that God makes all things new in us individually. This is an awesome truth. The big theological word for the day is regeneration, and we'll define this. This is an act of God which he imparts new spiritual life to us. It is solely an act of God. It's one of the elements in the application of redemption that we are not involved in. There are elements in the application of redemption that we're involved with, such as repentance and faith and perseverance. But regeneration is solely an act of God, where God saves us. Another common term for that is being born again. He takes those things which are dead, like it says in Ephesians 2.5, with dead not trespasses, and he resurrects them. He makes us alive in Christ. This is prophesied about in Ezekiel, where it says he will put a new heart in us. He will put his spirit in us. He will write his law on our hearts so that we can obey his commands. This is because God loves us, and he needs to make us new, because we were corrupted. We were sinful. We're all wretched sinners, and we need to be made new. This is totally, like I said, an act of God. Even in John 1.13, you see it says that we're not born of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, nor blood, but born of the will of God. And I remember when I was younger, I would always see the Jesus Saves bumper stickers. Does everyone remember those Jesus Saves bumper stickers? If you grew up in a radical Christian community, you remember them. And everyone would have the, two, um, the T-shirts. I used to think I thought I, thought I knew what that meant. In my mind, it meant that one day I would start doing what was morally right, that I was seeking God 
that I would one day find God and maybe do what's right, go to church once a week, do all the good things, and that I would, I would find God. But the Word of God teaches us something totally different. It teaches us that God is the pursuer, that God is hunting us down, that God is coming for us, that he came into human history to die for us, to seek and save that which was lost. And we were lost. We were in desperate need of a Savior. And he came to save us. He died and rose again so that we could be made new. This is great news. This is good news. And there's nothing uh, more exciting for a preacher or a pastor or anyone in the body of Christ than when you see someone's eyes opened up to the gospel. When you see that someone, that Jesus in his goodness and by his grace has revealed the gospel to them. He has opened their eyes up to true life, life in abundance, to true joy, life in Christ. There's nothing like that. We love to hear about conversions. And thank God that Jesus is the one who saves and not us. Because if it was up to us, we'd be in big trouble. We cannot save anyone. But we have a God who loves sinners and who is seeking them out and saving them. God redeems sinners. And today we're going to talk about one of the best or greatest testimonies, possibly one of the best conversions of all time. My vote is top 10. The Apostle Paul. Now let's get the name change right out of the way because you'll hear me say Saul, Paul. I'll get them all mixed up the whole time. Saul is Paul and Paul is Saul. You see the name change happen about, it happens in Acts 13. There's many different theories of why it happened. I like to go with the simple theory. New life, New heart, new direction, new name. We're going to keep it nice and easy. So when I talk about Saul, it's going to say in, in the text we're reading today, that's also Paul. And let's just do a little background on him. Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was from Tarsus. He was a Roman citizen. He was a zealous member of the Pharisee party. Some believe that his family had prominent status. He was a fiery guy. Okay? And... Um, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, it says that he didn't have an impressive appearance. And if you go to some historical accounts, you get an idea. Just give us a visual of what Paul looked like. He was a very short brother. He was a little man. He was rocking the unibrow, preaching the gospel. That's what the historical accounts say. Hooked nose, thin in hair, crooked legs, and they top it off. They end it with his face shown like an angel. You love that description, right? <laughs> Paul had a little man complex. He didn't back down from no one, and he preached the gospel to the end. We didn't get there yet. Let me not jump into that yet. But Paul, that's a little background for the visual and where he came from. And let's start reading the scripture here. We're going to start in Acts 9, 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now Luke wrote the book bearing his name, and he wrote the book of Acts. He's the only Gentile writer in the, only Gentile writer in the whole canon. One of his goals in the book of Acts was show, to show that um, the apostle Paul was a genuine, authentic apostle, that he saw Jesus, that he was commissioned by Jesus, that he received the gospel from Jesus. You see in the first part of the book of Acts that Peter is the main apostolic voice, and then you see roughly around chapter 9, it switches that Saul, Paul, becomes the main apostolic voice. 
And so you see even, even in those, these accounts that we're going to go through, there's three accounts in Luke 9, 22, and 26. One of his main goals is to show us that Paul is a genuine apostle. And we first see Saul's name at the end of uh, chapter 7 in the previous two chapters at the execution of the first martyr, Stephen. And it says at the beginning of chapter 8 that Saul approved of the execution of Stephen. He was ravaging the church. How did Paul feel about those who followed the way, about those who followed Christ? He hated everyone who proclaimed a risen Lord. He believed that Jesus was a heretic, that he was a blasphemer, that he was still in the grave. He gave his whole life to silence the cause of Christ. He even goes to the high priest to get authority so that he can go and throw more of them in jail, possibly see some of them murdered, and just to silence the voice of those who would proclaim a risen Lord. He was very passionate about this, very fiery. He gave his whole life for it. He thought that Jesus was a blasphemer. He thought he was defending the God of Israel and standing for his cause. He was a well-educated man, highly learned, and he always stood for the law and always stood um, for what he believed the God of Israel. And he gets authority to go to Damascus. Now, Damascus was roughly a 35-mile shot from Jerusalem. Now, what was his goal to go to Damascus? He was going to persecute more Christians. He wasn't seeking out God. He wasn't having some, oh my goodness, I'm going to seek out a risen Lord. He was going to persecute more Christians. And let's read on and see what happens, starting in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. An important note here. Who initiated the relationship between Jesus and Paul? Jesus. Jesus always plays the primary role in salvation. He knew that Paul would be on that road. He knew how old he would be. He knew what generation he would be born in. He knew him before his birth. He knew him in his mother's womb. God predestines us to know him. And because of his sovereign grace, he chooses to reveal himself to us. Also very important, he saw Jesus. This was not just some internal experience. There was no reason for him to have an internal experience. He hated those who said that Christ had risen. He was not one of those people who wanted to believe that Christ had risen. He's not one of those people who still believe that Elvis is alive. I think they saw him at Burger King eating a Whopper. You know, all like my brother who when Tupac died, he just couldn't accept that Tupac died. He'd walk up to me with pictures and say, man, he's at a party in the Bahamas, man. He's still alive. I say, no, Tupac's gone, bro. He did not want to see that Jesus rose from the dead. But Jesus chose to reveal himself to him. He showed up in a risen, physical way. 
And so we have Luke's accounts where you see the light. He says that a light shone around him. And of course, this light was pretty bright because it was noonday. So it must have been brighter than the sun. But you also see in Luke's account in Acts twenty-two fourteen that it says it was appointed to you to see the righteous one. So we know that he saw Jesus. And then when you go to Paul's own accounts in Galatians 1, 11 through 17, in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, and 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 11, he's saying, I saw the risen Lord. In Galatians 1, 11 through 17, he said, I received the gospel from Jesus. I was commissioned from Jesus. In 9, 1, he says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Did I not see the risen Lord? And also, even more convincing to me, myself, in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 11, he says, as one, the last, as someone untimely born, he appeared to me. And if you go to the previous verses, you get it in really good context. Because he said he appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the apostles, then he appeared to the 500, then he appeared to James, and lastly, he appeared to me. He's saying, I saw him in the same way that they saw him. I was commissioned by him. He gave me the gospel. He changed my life forever. And so he falls to his knees when he sees the risen Lord. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we hear that language in the gospel, gospels also from Jesus. He says, Martha, Martha, Simon, Simon. When he's crying, crying over Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, why? Jesus is grieved over our sin. He did not come to condemn Paul. He, came, he was grieved over Paul's sin and said, why, Paul? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul, imagine, I'm interchanging Saul and Paul more than I thought. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Imagine the punch in the gut. This much of that, this must have been. Jesus, I thought I was fighting for the cause of God. I'm persecuting the Son of God himself. I'm persecuting the Messiah of Israel. I'm persecuting the Divine One. This is something that always happens in conversion. We are confronted for the disgusting sinners we are. If there hasn't come a time in your life where you realize that you are a filthy, disgusting, wretched sinner, then you haven't known the gospel. Until we realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, we cannot know Christ. Until he shows up this scene and we realize that he is so holy. And that we pale in comparison to his holiness. And we fall to our knees and we say, you are Lord, I am a sinner. I need you as my Savior. That's the gospel. That we're wretched. And that even though he saves us, we're still wretched. That's what makes it so beautiful. It's not performance based. That my God loves me so much that even though I'm a sinner... He still loves me. And he shows up to Paul. He confronts him with his sin. And he says that you persecute me because you persecute my children. Isn't that great to know that if we're persecuted, we're per- people who persecute us are persecuting Christ himself? That's good company. He has our back. That's, that's good stuff. So, in the other accounts, Paul has a great response. We don't see this in Acts 9. He says, what do I do, Lord? This shows someone who now has a new master. He's not going to the high priest or to the Sanhedrin. He's saying, Lord, what do I do? You are my master now. 
Give me direction. Another great thing that happens in conversion, the direction of our life changes. We think we're going in one direction. (laughs) Now we're going in the total opposite direction. I'm sure many people can agree with me there. You never thought you'd be coming every week, every Sunday to hear the gospel, did you? But God showed up in your heart, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a whole different direction. Loving a Savior, knowing that He's alive, knowing that He is true. And He tells them to go to Damascus, because now Paul is blind, and he will spend three days without eating or drinking in darkness. And in the other accounts, too, you also said, why are you kicking against the goads? We heard Jeremy um, read that. Everyone know what a goad is? I didn't. But I got one of those cool little books, you look something up, and they tell you what it means. A goad is a long, pointy instrument that they used to use to prod the oxen in the right direction. And the oxen would try to kick if they didn't want to go in that direction. He's saying, Saul, why are you kicking against the gold? I'm trying to put you in the right direction. Why do you continue to persecute me? Is it not hard to fight against the cause of Christ? Is it not hard to fight against the God when he's pushing you in a direction? When he's trying to lead you to life and we're kicking against the gold? He's saying to Saul, what are you doing? And Saul confronted with all his sin. He's now seen the risen Lord. He knows he is the son of God. He finds himself in Damascus, led by the hand. He's blind. He doesn't eat or drink for three days. And imagine what was going on in his head. I've never even not seen for three days. Imagine seeing the risen Lord who you were persecuting, being confronted with your sin. He gives you direction, and now you're sitting in darkness for three days. What was going on in his prayer life? A lot of repentance, a lot of confusion, maybe a little afraid, maybe a little encouraged that now he knew the truth. But God did not even abandon him then. God let him sit in it for a little bit. But he didn't abandon him. Let's read on. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now you've got to think about what's going on with Ananias. God appears to him in a vision, not in the way he appeared to Paul. He appeared to Paul in a risen physical way. He appears to Ananias in a vision and says the last thing that Ananias thought he would ever hear. There's a guy Saul waiting for you. I need you to go pray for him so he can receive his sight. Huh? 
Ananias has a great response. And I love when I'm reading the Bible and these guys start talking like God doesn't know what he's doing. I never understood that. But I'm sure I would have did the same thing if I was in the canon. Do you know who Saul is? <laughs> this guy's evil. Do you know why he came here? He came here to persecute us and throw us in jail. I'm sure there was some fear too, thinking if I show up there, how do I know that he's not going to throw me in chains? He was talking about the old creation. God knows who we were. You can't trick God. He knows all the sins we have committed. He knows our disgusting past. He knows how many times we have failed. And he has forgiven us. He also knows what he has made us. And that's new. God didn't need to be reminded of who Paul was. He knew that. He was telling them who Paul was going to be and who he was now. He is new. He is mine. He is a chosen instrument. Be encouraged for all those who have put their faith in Christ and have been saved by him. That you are his. That he knew what he was doing when he called you. There wasn't a mistake. It wasn't by chance. You didn't find him. He found you. And he saved you. He said, Paul is my chosen instrument. I have a mission for him. He's going to be my voice and bring glory to my name. And he sets Paul up with a nice theology of suffering, which I think everyone should get a nice theology of suffering when Jesus finds them. Because Paul was going to be beaten, ridiculed, left for dead, stoned, shipwrecked, mocked, and ultimately murdered. You need a good theology of suffering for that. This is not something that Paul would have shied away from. It would have been his honor to suffer for the glory of God now because he knew that it was truth. And we need to remember that. It needs to be our honor to suffer for the glory of God, that he has called us, that he has known us, that he has saved us. Then Ananias goes, he lays hands on Saul. And I love, he relates to him in a, a totally new way now. No more is he Saul, the persecutor, but he's brother Saul. He lays hands on him. The Holy Spirit heals him. He's adopted into the family of God. One of the great joys of being made a new creation is that we're all made new creations together. Even though it's an individual thing, it's also a corporate thing. I'm very encouraged when I'm in worship and I see other people worshiping God and responding to the gospel and responding to their father in praise and song. A few things happen. I realize I'm not crazy. I also realize that God is saving more souls than just my own. And it brings me great joy and great comfort and great encouragement. Now, Paul's eyes are opened. And you can only imagine what was going on in Paul. He's seeing the world in a whole different way now. He goes right to the synagogue and just starts shooting heat. (laughs) Jesus is risen. He's alive. I was wrong. Can you imagine what was going on in the minds of Christians, Jews, and Gentiles? He was the unreachable, the unredeemable. No one would have picked Paul. Let me go witness to him and give him a track. No one thought that Paul would get saved. But God had a plan. The Holy Spirit would regenerate his heart. He would fill him with the Holy Spirit. He would be baptized and he would be sent on mission. We'd have 13 books in the canon where his work is still affecting us today. Because God redeems sinners. And I can't help but 
reflecting on my own stories. I'm sure many of us are reflecting on our own time when God saved us. And just being so happy, so relieved that I serve a God of love. That even when I was in sin, he saved me. I wasn't looking for God. God to me was okay. I might go to church a few times to get what I wanted, a wife and a child. I had no idea that when I was 19 years old, Halloween night, that he was going to come in and give me a new heart. I had no idea. I thought I was going to do it morally right and all that stuff. He set me on fire. And I'm sure many of you had the same thing. All of a sudden, I realized that God was alive. Now, I've never seen the risen physical Jesus. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is alive. The Holy Spirit bears witness in my soul that he is alive. That his words are true. That he is risen. And the Holy Spirit bears witness that I am a child of God, just like we all are children of God. I could never imagine that he was going to change the direction of my life like he did. Think of where you would be if Christ hadn't saved you. Wow. I was reflecting on this yesterday, and I was just crushed as I thought about that. I had no hope, but God came in. He saved me. He gave me a new heart and made me a new creation. And I know that my sins are forgiven. How beautiful is that? To know it. Not someone just telling you. I'm here to encourage you that you don't need to find your identity in what you have done. You can find your identity in who Christ is and what he's done for you. It's not about what we've done. It's about what he has done for us. Never find your identity in what you've done or even your feelings today, yesterday, or tomorrow. Find them in a God of love who redeems Sinners like you and me. And know this also. This should should encourage us when we evangelize. Knowing that we're not saving anyone. But that God can reach the unreachable. When someone says stop praying for him. Or stop preaching to him. Or stop believing that he will come to Christ. Or she will come to Christ. Or they will come to Christ. You keep believing. But the Holy Spirit redeems sinners. Who people believe cannot be redeemed. And we are a prime example of that. And he will complete the work that he started in you. He will cause you to bear much fruit. He will never leave you or forsake you. Because he has made you new. And he saves sinners like you and me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful truth, Father. That you are a God of love. That you are a compassionate God who saved us, Lord, who made us new. We don't have to live in condemnation. You have forgiven our sins. You love us. We don't have to perform for you, Lord, because you love us as we are. And you're changing us. You called us by your name. You knew us. And you love us, Lord. You're our Father. And we thank you for that, Lord. I pray that this truth would ring in our hearts, Lord. That when we're prone to look at our failures and to think in our past and look at who we were, that we'll remember who you have made us, new creations in you. And we just thank you for that work, Holy Spirit.
that you've done in us. Amen.